The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says inflation and Ukraine are powerful forces that threaten the economy and warns a recession is possible after the bank reported quarterly profit falling 42%. We've always spoken about the enormous strength of the economy, QT, inflation, war, commodity prices. There's almost no chance you won't have volatile markets. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq snap three-day losing streaks as producer prices rise at the fastest pace recorded, while Fed Governor Christopher Waller tells CNBC there is no value in trying to shock the market. We might be at the peak and that we'll start seeing some relief on this in the, in the next coming months. But it doesn't relieve us of our job to you know, remove accommodation, get inflation down. The White House boosts military aid to Ukraine as Russia claims more than 1,000 Ukrainian troops have surrendered in Mariupol despite a missile attack crippling a Russian warship in the Black Sea. Crude prices cool after surging during U.S. trade as supply concerns and tensions over Russian oil overshadow a build-up in inventories. So we're off and running on quarterly bank earnings here and shares in JP Morgan ultimately closed more than 3% lower after the US lender posted a 42% decline in first quarter net income and a 5% drop here in revenue. JP Morgan pinning the slump in earnings on a marked slowdown in deal making and increasing bad loan reserves, which totaled just over $900 million. The bank also reported a loss of over $500 million related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, speaking on the investor call, CEO Jamie Dimon said he sees clouds on the horizon for the US economy, but added it is impossible at this stage to predict which way the market will turn. Things are unpredictable. Wars are unpredictable. Wars have unpredictable outcomes. You've already seen in oil markets, the oil markets are, are, are precarious. Okay, so I pointed that out over and over, that if you know, people don't understand that those things can change dramatically for either physical reasons, cyber reasons, or, or uh, just you know, supply demand. And so th- that is, that's another huge cloud on the horizon. And I, we're prepared for it. We understand it. We're just, I can't tell you the outcome of it. I hope those things all disappear and go away. We have a soft landing and the war is resolved. Okay, I just wouldn't bet on all that. Well, in spite of the individual performance of JP Morgan down 3%, as we mentioned, on that miss, the U.S. markets themselves actually managed to put in a strong performance to the upside with the Dow gaining back about 1%. And as you can see, the Nasdaq uh, reignited by a desire to own growth at better valuations. The Nasdaq composite up about 2%. In terms of the banks overall, as I say, JP Morgan down 3%. And I think that uh, just refocus some minds on what the expectation is with regard to the rest of the earnings season here for the banks. But 
but even as you look at the uh, the wall here you can see there was a fairly even split and I think the investors just trying to do the maths as they raked over the coals of JP Morgan's numbers just trying to figure out who would have greater or lesser exposure to the war in Ukraine and obviously City is one of those that has announced that it does have some exposure uh, some of the others like Wells Fargo perhaps have more limited risk from that war. It is of course another big day for US bank earnings. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, City and Wells Fargo all reporting before the bell. Bank of America and BNY Mellon will release earnings on Monday. So what do we think of the JP Morgan numbers and what do they tell us about the rest of the bank earnings season? Octavio Morenzi joins us, the CEO of OPMAS. Always a little bit difficult on this quarter to get clarity or a clean set of numbers it seems Octavio because we know the comparative period had so much writing back of reserves just how bad or good were these numbers in your opinion well you're absolutely right it's very difficult to compare because the last quarter a year ago they had released a lot of reserves that they built up during the pandemic and so that distorted the numbers to the upside quite uh, quite severely but it's not a good a very encouraging sign i mean the return on equity is down to 13 percent that's way down from this around 20 percent that we saw over the course of the past two years and basically i think we had a fantastic period in banking in the past two years starting with the covid pandemic it was very very good for trading investment banking and that has basically come to an end now so one can point a finger at Ukraine and the war and things like that, but I think there's more fundamental issues there. That basically that tailwind that was given through investment banking, trading profits, and very, very low loan losses during COVID. Bear in mind, the governments around the world basically subsidized anyone and everyone, whether they moved or didn't move, to try and prevent them going bankrupt. And that was very, very good for the bank's bottom line. They had very, very low charge-offs on, on the loans overall, some of the lowest numbers they've ever seen. And those things are basically now evaporated. So we're back to normal, and it doesn't look that pretty. We're down about 13% return on equity and I think that's sort of indicative for the rest of the banking sector as well as goes JP Morgan so go the rest of the US banks I believe yeah but Octavia it was very interesting that JP Morgan I mean he pointed the finger at all sorts of reasons for the uh, underperformance in these numbers uh, but ultimately I think uh, as we look forward he suggested that there is a huge amount of opacity about the outlook given the risks to the US economy the rising uh, inflation spike that we've got and also obviously the ongoing geopolitical issue. Do you think he was making too much of some of those issues to camouflage the underperformance? I think he's absolutely right on the inflation front. So in terms of what happens next in equities and bond markets, everyone's watching what the Fed's going to do and whether they're going to tighten and how much they're going to tighten by and how much they're going to raise interest rates. Now, I think over the course of the past day, the, the market sort of sighed a, a bit of a relief, basically thinking we've sort of we've hit the spike, the peak in terms of inflation, and the certain inflation numbers look a bit encouraging. The thing that has driven consumer prices up the most in the US has been petrol prices, basically, and it looks like those peaked somewhere back in March, sort of middle of March, I think 11th of March is where they hit the high point and have sort of been tapering down slightly since that ever so, so slightly. So I think the markets took that as a sign of encouragement that the Fed is not going to slam on the brakes too hard. But I think Jamie Dimon is basically talking about that. If the Fed increases interest rates too hard, too fast, or even at all, 
equities markets and bond markets are going to suffer quite severely. And their lending is going to suffer as well. People are not going to refinance mortgages. They're not going to take new mortgages. Corporations are not going to take loans on, on much higher interest rates. So all those businesses suffer as, as a result of that. I, I think gone are the days when, just about a year ago, some of the banks were saying higher interest rates are going to be really good for us because we'll get high net interest margin. They, it looks like they've forgotten that entirely, that line of reasoning. But so it doesn't look encouraging. If interest rates go up a lot, it's going to be very, very bad for the banking sector. And I think that's what Jamie Dimon is talking about much more than the war in Ukraine. I think that's a more limited impact in terms of the U.S. economy. Octavia, it's uh, Karen jumping in. I want to ask you about the money that's been set aside here. I mean, we just got past the, the putting provisions uh, aside just in case, and now we've got uh, 900 million set aside, one third tied to Russia at this point. How unusual is that? I mean, we've seen in the past around the pandemic that the banks pretty much all did this. But is this just a new learning where the banks then have the ability to have all this cash and they can just release it to smooth out the results whenever they like? I suppose you might call it creative accounting. I think it was probably justified back during the pandemic. It did look very, very bad indeed. Uh, unemployment shot up. And usually that's sort of a very a good indicator of what default rates are going to be is unemployment. But as I said before, it was a bit different this time because the governments around the world subsidized so much of the consumer. There were rent moratoria. There were student loan moratoriums in place, uh, all sorts of forgiveness and, and delays in having to repay things. And that's coming to, to an end basically now. So people having to start to repay those things. And what we did see in the JP Morgan numbers is the actual real charge-offs and bad loads actually inching up a bit. So we've reached the bottom, I think, in terms of the, the loss reserves. If you look before the pandemic, JP Morgan had about $13 billion on its balance sheet in terms of reserves for loan losses. That skyrocketed to about $30 billion during the pandemic, slightly higher than $30 billion, and they've drawn that down now to about $17 billion. So we've hit, I think, the pl a plateau. But the plateau we're at now is actually higher than pre-pandemic. They've had to set aside about $4 billion more in in terms of loan loss reserves, because things are starting to get a bit worse. They're deteriorating ever so slightly in terms of credit card portfolios and mortgage portfolios and things of that sort. So it does look like this, this drawing down of the reserves is basically over at this stage. And that boost at the bottom line has disappeared. I do want to ask you a bit about consumers, but I still want to focus on risk at the bank because we've been through this before where we've seen episodes where banks on Wall Street took a lot of risk. That was very negative, of course, going into the financial crisis. And then we saw a change of culture. But if you take a look at some of the big headlines, and of course, one of them was that huge nickel short in the market. And it seems uh, if we look at these numbers, JP Morgan was the top margin lender to that Chinese metals giant that uh, really roiled the nickel market. Is this telling us that some of the risk parameters have been running fairly wide, fairly high at this point. And uh, JP Morgan, perhaps it hasn't been as conservative as it should be at this stage. Well, I can't speak precisely to what happened with that nickel trade, but it does look like they got caught on a, on the wrong side of a very, very unusual price move to the price of nickel, which just shot through the roof. I'll remind you that uh, trading in nickel stopped on the London Metal Exchange for a few days as a result of that. And there was all sorts of turmoil because prices ran away so fast, but came back down to more normal. So they got caught on the wrong side of that. I think overall, if you compare this to the last time we went through a financial crisis, I think the, the banks have been much, much more cautious about the risks they take. We haven't seen these kind of enormous risks they've taken in, particularly in the form of mortgage-backed securities and things of that sort. So I think overall their risk management policies have been much, much more conservative overall this time. And most of the businesses they're really engaging in are not so much principal risk businesses, but more or less they're working on an agency capacity. So I think they've been much, much more careful about that overall and managed that much better. So I'm not expecting to see those kinds of enormous losses rack up again this time. Bear in mind the bank's balance sheets are, I think, much, much sounder than they were 10 years ago.
And can I push on to the consumers then? Because the deposit numbers were fascinating, the 15% increase in consumer and small business deposits. And this was a, a story that we were focusing on before the lead up to the first earnings, where there's just been huge liquidity in the banking system, these deposits, and that of course leaves the banks paying out money rather than if this is on the loan side. Are we hearing any further indications that consumers will start to dwindle down those savings at some point? We know that there were stimulus checks that were put into bank accounts, but do you think this starts to change at some point? I think it has to start to change at some point. I mean, there's a few things that need to change or will change over the course of the next year or so. First of all, if you look at sort of the the deposit to loan ratio at the banks, it is actually at an incredibly low level. So they're lending out relative to deposits much, much less than they have historically. So the banks have a lot of upward capacity headroom there to lend out more. They've got enough deposits on hand, enough reserves that they can increase their lending quite substantially. Uh, but there's just not that many opportunities. All the credit worthy borrowers have basically been lent to all the people want to borrow money have more or less been lent to but uh, they still have headroom there to lend out much much more bear in mind you're, you're right in general that the deposits uh, they have to pay for but many of those deposits are non-interest bearing so a lot of that money is tied up in checking accounts and current accounts that don't pay any interest at all and that's an interesting item there in the JP Morgan numbers as well is that much of those deposits that don't pay any interest on at all so it's basically free money to them I mean they have to pay some operational expenses in terms of the payments going in and out and stuff like that and maintaining the accounts but they're not paying any interest on those. That's an interesting artifact there as well in those numbers. Octavio, if, if we look at the banks then going forward, uh, Wells Fargo is the one that interests me and I'd be interested in your view on this. In terms of its share price performance, it does seem to have been one of the better performers and as we know its business model is somewhat different from the JP Morgans and the cities. As interest rates continue to rise here, is there perhaps an opportunity for Wells Fargo to do even better than the rest of the pack through the rest of this year. How do you feel about that bank in particular? Well, I think you're absolutely right. They have a different mix, uh, a business mix than some of the other big US banks. So they have much, much less on the investment banking and trading side, much less on the asset management side. So they've got more limited exposure to capital markets there, basically. They've got much more limited international exposure. So a bank like Citibank has a big exposure in Russia and other parts of Latin America. Uh, Wells Fargo has none of that, basically. It's very much a domestic, dare I say, regional bank within the, in the US. So the question is, how does that unfold? I think there are some weaknesses in the Wells Fargo story though. One is that there's a large amount of mortgage lending that takes place within Wells Fargo and that's been fairly dependent on people refinancing mortgages as well. And when interest rates were very low, that was a business that did very well. With interest rates increasing, no one's refinancing their mortgage anymore. No one's swapping in their three-year, a 3% mortgage for a 5% mortgage. So that business sort of has dried up. So I would expect within the Wells Fargo numbers to see a fairly steep decline in the mortgage lending side of things, which is a very important part of their business. And then sort of some flatness in the commercial lending um, and some encouraging signs basically in the credit card side of things. So those I think how, how Wells Fargo will play out. And the investment banking and trading side of things, which has hit uh, JP Morgan quite hard and probably is going to hit some of the other US majors quite hard as well, is not really that relevant for them. Octavio, we know you've been pouring through the numbers and we appreciate you sharing the expertise with us. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Octavio Morenzi, who is the CEO of OpiMass. I'm going to just move on to some news that is crossing the tape, and this relates to the Benetton-Blackstone deal that the two companies have been reportedly working on, a bid for Atlantia. This is now a bid for the company at €23 Euros per share. The Benetton holding company Blackstone say they will offer a premium of 36.3% over Atlantia's six-month average share price. 
and uh, the idea here is to delist Atlantia. Um, this is uh, a fairly huge deal and reports suggested it could be worth about 48 billion euros. Just waiting confirmation on the exact size of that deal. But uh, it is thought to be one of the biggest deals of 2022 so far. And of course, as we just talk about the banks and how limited the deal making has been this year, this is quite a significant one. But effectively, it would mark a new phase for this infrastructure group. It uh, has had its reputation under um, attack after the bridge disaster in Genoa. So uh, effectively, we're seeing remaking of the operations here and some uh, deal making to try and shore up the finances of the business and uh, change direction. But we will bring you further developments over the course of the day. Um, but in the meantime, let's just push on to BlackRock because uh, shares in the company extended their gains in after hours trade as the US asset management firm reported better than expected profit for the first quarter. The New York based firm says it benefited from demand for index traded and active funds. The group reported $9.5 trillion in assets under management, lower than its record $10 trillion in the previous quarter. BlackRock warned fees will remain under pressure due to market volatility. Delta Airlines expects to return to profit after posting a smaller than expected loss in the first three months of the year. The US carrier says it's seen a jump in bookings and fares that have helped to offset rising fuel costs. The airline expects revenues to rise double digits in the second quarter and sales to continue to recover to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, perhaps an interesting one if you're watching the inflation numbers this week as well, that reading on the airline sector. Well, the CEO, Ed Bastian, told CNBC he expects higher demand for air travel to continue despite inflationary pressures. People have been cooped up for the last two years. And while I know there's concern and questions about consumer health and what's going to happen to demand down the road and inflationary pressures, this is a category that has been prioritized by consumers. And they want to spend in terms of getting back to where they, they, uh, where they haven't seen people. They're done investing in their homes and their gardens. They want to go see somebody else's house and garden for a change. Still to come on the program then, the European Central Bank is set to maintain its policy path despite record high inflation and uncertainty over the war in Ukraine. But they may need to do something. The latest lending survey from the Eurozone banking sector suggests monetary conditions are tightening even as they face inflationary headwinds. We'll have more when we come back. And we're across all the biggest bank earnings. You can check it out wherever you are on Squawk Podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. reading on inflation and the U.S. producer prices have jumped more than 11 percent year on year in March, the highest level since records began in 2010 and the fourth consecutive month of double-digit gains. Energy prices saw the biggest increase, up almost 6 percent on the month, 
while food costs rose nearly 2.5%. The latest rise in supplier prices comes on the back of March's surge in the Consumer Prices Index, which hit its highest level in 40 years. Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller has told CNBC he believes that pace of price increases has peaked. However, he still expects the central bank to hike rates considerably through the year, even indicating a potential 50 basis point increase at its next meeting in May. We might be at the peak and that we'll start seeing some relief on this in the, in the next coming months. But it doesn't relieve us of our job to you know, remove accommodation and get inflation down. So let's have a look at um, how the markets have done across the week here because you've got a holiday shortened trading week and you've got plenty of reasons for investors to think about pairing risk as we look at this extended holiday. But I don't think that's really the reason why we've got these averages down across the week. A lot of that has to do with the uh, inflation equation that is running through investors' minds as they think about how much central banks will have to tighten monetary conditions uh, because of inflationary pressure and what that ultimately means for corporate earnings and markets going forward. So if we look at the week to date, you can see that there's been actually quite a bit of lacklustre performance in the headline indices um, in spite of uh, what happened yesterday where we had actually quite a strong close uh, to the session for the US markets which which was rather strange because the PPI numbers the factory gate prices number um, again just reconfirmed the strong momentum we're seeing in inflationary pressures at the moment, which is why when we look at the treasuries, what we also uh, got was peculiarly uh, a little bit of a decline in the yields. And again, um, it didn't quite sit right with the inflation number, but it did perhaps suggest that the market continues to buy the belief that this may be the peak in the inflation cycle. If I show you the, the dollar, it was a similar story. I mean, we, we, where are we? 20-year peaks on the dollar index, effectively. But again, you know, the dollar eased back, and that appeared to be a reluctance to hold a very strong dollar position going through the uh, holiday-shortened week. Sterling dollar, 131.40, so the pound has managed to fight its way back off the canvas at 130. Euro dollar, one spot, 0915. Uh, and as you can see, the dollar's even on the back foot against the traditionally quite weak Japanese yen. Let's have a look at oil. Uh, well, you'd expect oil to spike, wouldn't you, on the back of those factory gate price numbers. But again, that very unusual market reaction we seem to have uh, just saw oil easing back uh, a little bit this morning. I have to say we did get some movement higher within the last 24 hours in spite of some inventory data in the United States that might have just uh, eased some supply concerns. Um, it does appear that that is um, uh, sinking into the market this morning with Brent down about a quarter of a point, as you can see. The Asian markets, what are they telling us about the potential open here in Europe? Well, it's very interesting that the idea of a, a triple R cut in China is being floated and I suspect that that has given a little bit of support here to the Shanghai Composite and the Hong Kong Index. The 225 as always reacting in Japan to the trend in commodity pricing and bouncing off the back of uh, the market's view on inflation which seems to be Karen largely that yeah 
Nothing to see here, it's all going to be fine. There's no reason to be too alarmed by these double-digit prints on inflation numbers. It seems to be uh, one of the uh, same messages from the ECB to an extent and whether they're just being too complacent at this point. And let's just switch focus to uh, what is coming up today as the ECB is expected to maintain its policy course at its meeting today despite surging inflation in the eurozone and uncertainty over the war in Ukraine. The central bank will, however, outline a clearer schedule for unwinding its stimulus program after announcing it will end bond purchases in the third quarter. Let's get out to Annette for more. Annette, no shortage of critics for central bank policy at the moment, particularly around the ECB, but uh, comments from Otmar Ising just a couple of days back. This is the first chief economist over at the ECB and one of the founding fathers of the euro. Uh, he was effectively calling the approach around inflation as misdiagnosis from the ECB. That must hurt the current crop of ECB bankers at this stage. Yeah, it actually might be hurting, but uh, just to put a bit of perspective on uh, Otmar Ising and where the ECB was when he was the chief economist, it was a completely different institution, it was a completely different world, and as we all know, there were many defectors from the Bundesbank thinking, not only, uh, for example, Stark, the former chief economist who left the ECB uh, because he was uh, not content with the way and the direction of the ECB, or Axel Weber was also not content with the direction of the ECB. So I guess it, it, the, the thinking of how monetary policy actually is deployed and designed has changed tremendously ever since the ECB was incepted. So let me bring you back to what we are expecting today. Um, I think the, the most we could actually get is a, a bit of a more precise timeline of the exit of the, um, for the net purchases. Um, Christine Lagarde could go as far as saying it's early in the third quarter and then we are going to see the first rate uh, hikes. Um, currently, the market is pricing in a rate hike in September, October, and potentially in December. So three rate hikes for this year could be on the table. Um, the reason why the ECB is not going into uh, the markets now with rate hikes is because of their forward guidance. They have a very firm commitment to that forward guidance, which says that first the net asset purchases have to stop, and then they can lift off rates. Another big issue or big topic could be um, that potential backstop they're creating. Um, for the moment, they don't have any net asset purchases more in place in order to avoid any fragmentation of the Eurozone in terms of yield development. We are already seeing that spreads are rising quite, um, yeah, quite a bit in the periphery in anticipation of the, uh, the end of the asset purchases. And that backstop facility then could be deployed in order to prevent any fragmentation to happen because clearly the ECB does not want that either. So for now, again, to wrap it up, um, a potentially a firmer timeline, no rate hikes as of today. The ECB really always likes to wait until they get some more data, which will be in June, um, to get perhaps a bit more visibility about also the economic outlook because that is clearly very uncertain for the Eurozone. The name of the game is stagflation. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.